looking to learn more on how to build wealth through real estate? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Make Money Make Sense podcast with Dante Belmonte. Each episode, we have the privilege to bring you a professional in the real estate world. One that will help you become a top investor, whether that's a passive role or managing the day-to-day. Let's jump right in. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Make Money Make Sense in Real Estate. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte. Thanks for choosing us as your podcast of the day. This week's guest is Terry Painter. Terry Painter is the author of the Encyclopedia of Commercial Real Estate Advice. I call this the big orange book. It's about 450 pages thick, but it is a phenomenal tool if you're looking to invest or get started in commercial real estate or even learn more. Terry is a leading loan officer and he does a phenomenal job. We're looking forward to working with him on our projects. I'm down here in the Carolinas right now touring some multifamily units. Uh, we got a lot of good things going on, hopefully we'll be submitting some offers here. But other than that, thank you guys again for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Alrighty, guys, welcome back to the show. Thank you for tuning back in to Make Money Make Sense. I'm your host, Dante Belmonte. Today's guest, we've got a super special guest. His name is Terry Painter. Terry is the author of this big orange book. I like to call it. Um, it is the Encyclopedia of Commercial Real Estate Advice. And I have to say, he did a phenomenal job with this book. Terry, you, you did a great job. I really enjoyed it. Told my partner immediately to go order it. And uh, I'm excited to talk about it today. But enough from me. Terry, introduce yourself. Hey, thank you, Dante, for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. Uh, okay, so I'm Terry Painter. Uh, the book is an encyclopedia. It is big. And what I love the most about having written this book is that I have a passion for commercial real estate. I've been a commercial mortgage banker for 24 years. I was a top producer at Lehman Brothers and also in the lending commercial lending department and also LaSalle Bank. And uh, my two uh, banking commercial banking firms, business loan store and apartment loan store have done over $4 billion in commercial lending since 1997. And it's basically, for me, I could not have had a better job. I get bored very easily. And that's kind of like how I got in this work. I used to have a chain of, of, of French bakeries and restaurants. And, uh, but the problem is that once I got, the, once I you know got a new restaurant, they were all in shopping centers. Once, once I built one and it got opened and I, I loved working there for maybe four or five months and I got bored and I wanted to build another one. Well, that was pretty rough in my marriage because my wife was getting very, she kept, we had to keep, keep taking out home equity loans and do other more restaurants and so I decided I better find another career, something where I could have a deal to work on without having to spend so much money each time. I had, a, I had a, uh, one of my best friends had bank, you know, it was a banker and, uh, in Oregon, that's where I was living in uh, Southern Oregon. And he actually, uh, you know, he was, you know, we'd go out for a beer or something. And I said, hey, I'd like to do what you're doing. Cause you, you know, just like working on different deals. It just sounds great. Commercial loans, business loans, he said, well, I said, what does it take? So anyway, just to cut that part a bit short, uh, nobody except my mother believed that I could change careers. I was in my early 40s, that I could actually change careers at that age and do this. But it's been a wonderful ride. I just love uh, the deal. Every deal is different. And that's most that's a part of the, of the, of the uh, commercial mortgage uh you know, industry that I love the most is actually getting a new deal in and, and analyzing it, deciding what's, you know, how to put it together. So, uh, so I've worked on hundreds of loans, I've closed hundreds of commercial uh, loans. And uh, that is actually what's given me the background for writing an encyclopedia on commercial real estate. Most investors of commercial real estate might invest, most invest in one type, some two, maybe three. And I've, been, I've worked on just about every type of commercial real estate. And also we've always done uh, business loans with uh, you know, business loans as well. This, in this day and age, we just do business loans that have real estate attached, but probably the largest sector of commercial real estate is actually business-owned properties or somebody who's a chiropractor or an architect and they own their own, their own building. But anyway, but what, I'm, what I work on nowadays is uh, you know, commercial lending on income producing properties. And so uh, 
I don't know, it must have been uh, a little shy of two years ago, uh, my editor at uh, Wiley, uh, they do the Dummies book, just gives me a call and says, hey, our editorial committee came up with this concept for a book called, called uh, The Commercial Real Estate Encyclopedia. Would you be interested in writing it? And I said, well, gosh, I'm really flattered. That sounds really interesting. But I thought, encyclopedia? You know, that sounds really boring, you know? And I, could, I just could not think of how can I take a subject that's technical and, and it can be rather boring and make it more interesting. And so we had about, uh, my Richard, my Richard Nirmore, my editor and I had about maybe 11 or 12 meetings. And we finally decided, he decided, he said, well, why don't we call the book the Encyclopedia of Commercial Real Estate Advice? And I said, okay, let's do it, but I'm not gonna make the book boring. But the book actually, uh, it originally had over 480 encyclopedia topics. I hate to say it, but commercial real estate can be that complex. We narrowed it down to 335 topics. It's on eight different subjects. The main subjects are repositioning, developing, buying, selling, financing, and managing and leasing. And so I go through, the book actually goes through in as much detail as you could put into a 500 plus page book, just about everything that somebody would need to know to either get started or sharpen their skills in the field of commercial real estate. And I do have to emphasize that this is a field. This is not something where you just, you know, buy, buy a property and just get rich quick. It's something that does take some study as you yourself know, Dante. And so uh, over the, so what happened is that I, uh, I'm not proud of this, but I've actually gone, I'm on my third marriage because I actually just love working. And, and now I'm taking like an extra day off a week so that I love working on deals. And so What's happened is I will actually evaluate, and I have a crew of, uh, my company now has uh, about six people working with me, but uh, we used to have more than that before the Great Recession. But what I'll do is I'll just, I actually, my person, you know, I evaluate probably about five or six deals a day. And so that, that comes out to an average of over 30 a week, multiply that times 24 years. And I look at a lot of deals, most of which we, don't necessarily get to finance. A lot of them just don't pencil out. But, uh, but anyway, you, you get an idea that I'm kind of excited about commercial real estate. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean Terry, I, I love your passion. I again, I love this book. It is easily one of my top two favorite books. I mean, I've read in the last two years easily a hundred real estate books, and this has definitely hit the top because it's very in depth. But like you said, you didn't want to make it boring. So you, as you go out throughout the story, you have. Or the book, you have stories that you put in there of clients you've worked with. And it's really stuff that grabs your attention. You want to, as you're reading it, you want to hear more. You want to hear what happened with each individual client, uh, especially in the development section. You had some good stories in there about, yeah. uh, unfortunately, a client that was looking to develop, but didn't follow through. And you really just grabbed attention there. Um, real quick, before we dive into the nuts and bolts of it, um, you said you're a mortgage banker. Tell us what that consists of. Do you uh, fund properties yourself and then sell them as uh, securitized. Uh, yeah. That, Go ahead. Thank you for asking that. Uh, prior to the recession, we did everything. Uh, we mostly uh, we, we mostly sold our loans on the secondary market. And that's what we did for Lehman Brothers. And we sold, we sold our loans to Lehman Brothers and a lot of other institutions. And uh, what happened is that the world of... Um, commercial lending just really tightened after the Great Recession. And uh, it's, it's more difficult to get any type of loan today because of, you know, so many people were over leveraged at that time. So, so, to, in this, so today, in this day and age, we primarily have, we're, we're correspondents for insurance money, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, and we represent our sources directly. And, uh, and so that's primarily the mortgage banking that we do these days. We also have the advantage of being mortgage brokers as well. Uh, as correspondents, we get more favorable pricing and we get to work directly with the underwriters and the credit managers or uh, people who actually approve the loans. But uh, being able to, but we can also, we could also um, broker loans and just we could use community banks, uh, we could use credit unions, and also just compare the very best sources. In this line of work, it's not the number of sources you have for financing, it's the relationships you have with those sources. And that's, that's the best thing about my company, apartment loan store, uh, and business loan store too. So 
I like it. Well, let's dive right into it. So we'll start out with, I guess, the the strategies or loan types that you can choose. So for someone that's doing multifamily, multifamily syndications like myself, we, we look at it two ways. If we're taking a pretty distressed asset, we're probably going to find some bridge money, hard money loans, um, utilize those, and then move into more of agency permanent debt. Or when we acquire a project, we start with agency debt permanent uh, financing and leave it in place if it's not too heavy of a value add, it's more stabilized. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about that, the differences and, and the loan types, and uh, we'll go from there. Okay. Well, you did mention syndication, and I personally worked on over 50 syndicated transactions, and they're more technical, and you, uh, and they really lend the, they really work the best with non-recourse financing. Let me, let me just talk a bit about non-recourse uh, financing just just for the benefit of any listener who might not be familiar with that term. Yep. Uh, okay, so commercial banks love their recourse. Why? Because it's the best weapon they have in their arsenal in case you don't make the loan payments because they literally, when you follow a personal financial statement, they have all of your assets, all of your toys even. You own an RV, a boat, that's all on there. And so they could just keep going after one of your possessions after another if you default on the loan until they make themselves whole. And so what that does, if you're talking about a syndicated transaction where you're bringing in investors, well, investors don't want to be responsible for the loan if it goes south. And so with non-recourse financing, uh, there's a single asset uh, entity, let's say like an LLC that owns the commercial property or the apartment building directly. And so the le- if there is a default on that mortgage or you just go upside down, the only, the only possession of that, the only item they can go after is the subject property. They can't go after anything else. So in fact, you pretty much could just hand the keys to them. Although that's painful, it's, it's uh, and I think for a lot of those, those of you that are getting started more in commercial real estate, you probably are going to have to get the best place to actually get a loan is at a community bank. And I'm going to start talking about that first, but for more sophisticated transactions that, and larger transactions that, that are gonna be syndicated, being able to put together non-recourse financing is a plus. Uh, if you need to, if you're gonna be uh, reposition the property, doing some late rehab or cosmetic improvements, uh, there are uh, bridge lenders that are non-recourse as well. So it's really worth it to they lend themselves to, you know, non-recourse really starts at about $2 million and above. But however, um, for uh, permanent financing, you know, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac start at about a million. So, so there you go. So, uh, so non-recourse financing is a plus. Uh, and if you, and so, uh, but I'm going to start by talking about if you don't have any experience and you don't have uh, let's say let's just say you don't have a lot of cash left over. You don't have a high net worth. About the only place you could really get a loan, an a, what we call an A paper loan that has a really good low rate and a good amortization is probably your a community bank or a credit union. Okay. okay. Right. So, yep. Yeah, because they actually what they're looking for are additional sources of, of income, a credit score of preferably 700 plus. Uh, they would like you know if you've you know, fixed and flip some homes and, or have a rental property, that's definitely a plus for them. But mostly they're looking for additional, more than one source of income. So if both, if, uh, both a husband and a wife each have a job, that's good, that's two sources of income. If you happen to have a, a one rental property and a job, that's two sources of income. So, but you don't have to, but for, if we move into the agency loans, which are the next ones I'm gonna mention, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, you have to have a net worth equal to the size of the loan. Well, so let me ask you this, Terry, before you get too far off. So looking sure. at those local, regional and credit unions, um, what if, so obviously those are good, like you said, if you're getting started, you don't have the uh, large commercial experience, but you've done some smaller multifamilies, um, you possibly have the net worth. What if you don't live in that area that you're investing with where the community bank is? What would you suggest then? Okay, well, th- that if you, that's, uh, not an easy one, mainly because community right. banks, credit unions, they have what we um, call a footprint. Of, they have a geographical 
geographic area that they could actually lend in. Also, they're looking for deposit. They'd like to get all of your deposit relationships. And so, uh, but there are, there re okay, so that's, those are community local banks, the corner bank. Regional banks are larger and they have, they, they usually lend in multiple states. They prefer larger cities along major freeways and so on, but, uh, for, and, and they also have higher, uh, more stringent requirements, but you start with, but community banks do prefer that you live nearby. So it's, for that, it's another reason why if you're starting out, it's actually better to find a, uh, an apartment building or something, you know, that's actually closer to where you live. Also, right, in your backyard, possibly. In your own backyard to start out, because also you could keep an eye on it. Now, if you're partnering with somebody, uh, or you have somebody like Dante on your team, uh, you could actually, you know, that you could probably, you know, hire professional management somewhere else. And there are some community banks that have a larger footprint and can probably lend to you. Awesome. Okay. Uh, so uh, credit unions are rather new to commercial lending, and which, uh, but they're not restricted. Uh, the federally chartered credit unions, many of them, uh, are not allowed to charge prepayment penalties, prepayment penalties. And I'm just bringing that up because otherwise just about every other commercial loan these days has a prepayment penalty. So credit unions could be a great source for fixing and flipping commercial properties. And they, you usually have to join a credit union or live nearby, but there are some that actually can work that out so that you could be a member. And uh, they, you don't have to have a, a net worth larger than, you know, equal to the size of the loan, it could be smaller. And you, the one, one of the requirements of, that any lender will require is that you have some post-closing liquidity. So community banks and commercial loan, I'm sorry, community banks and credit unions are gonna have some heartburn if after you put your down payment and the closing costs and buy this property, you are stone broke. That's not gonna, they're not gonna like that. So, uh, so, so anyway, so just make sure you, even if you have to bring in another partner, somebody to shore up your cash at the end that you have some post-closing liquidity. Right. Cause I mean, in the bank size, I, I have this lot being a broker, being that I sell property, people always get upset at the lender sometimes. And I say, well, you need to put yourself in their shoes. If you, someone came to you for money to lend on a property, would you be okay giving money to someone to buy a property that after they purchase it, have no money to service the debt in case the property stops cash flowing or rent stops coming in or something like coronavirus comes in. And then their attitude kind of changes. So that's why I feel the banks do that is they want that post liquidity in case you were have to uh, replace a roof on the property, make payments when tenants aren't in the property. Exactly. And also just for what, in my book, I also recommend that when you're buying a commercial property, that you have some working capital just set aside for that property. If it's a group of investors, they just, bring, they just raise a little bit more money so that uh, everybody starts out looking at a property like it's just going to keep going just fine. But, it, but, but it's going to, you know, if it's an older property, it's going to need, need some work along the way. And, and so almost all, all uh, you know, failures during the last two recessions, especially the Great Recession um, of 2007, 2008, happened because of, of investors who just over leveraged and they didn't have, they, this, every time they had some extra money, they bought another property. They didn't have any cash sitting in the bank uh, to make it through a rainy day. So yeah, that's really important. Right. Yep. That's definitely something to think about there. So if you'd like, I'll, I'll proceed. Okay. So uh, if you are a uh, self-employed person, you don't show a lot of income on tax returns, which community banks and credit unions do require. They look at tax returns. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are agency loans, do not collect tax returns. They're really making, they started because in the old days, they made the loan primarily to the property and the property's income. Now, ever since the Great Recession, the borrower is the most important pre-qualification. So, but, so, so the property is cash flowing really well, has a history of cash flowing, and uh, you, you know, you have a net worth equal to the size of the loan and, so, and, the, and some post-closing liquidity, you know, then, then actually, let's just say the post-closing liquidity is going to be for an agency loan, Fannie and Freddie is going to be about 12 months, nine to 12 months of loan payments. So that can be attainable for a lot of, a lot of folks. 
So then, uh, but if you're self-employed, you don't show a lot of income on tax returns, those, those, that's the best way to go because you don't have to submit tax returns. Right. So, and those, those loans have the best rates. They have, uh, you could fix a Fannie Mae loan from anywhere from five years to 30 years and a, a Freddie loan from five years to 10 years. So uh, if you think about a commercial property, you know, that's well managed, if you can keep raising rents, the value is going to go up. So chances are, you're gonna, you know, the way most of my clients have gotten really gotten rich over the years is by, you know, doing cash out refinances after five years of ownership and, or maybe selling the property and doing a 1031 exchange. But so, uh, so, so anyway, being in a position uh, so actually, as long as you keep raising your rents, you, you know, the property will go up. So probably having a, a loan term of, you know, of five or 10 years is probably can be adequate if you want to take cash out and uh, buy another property and, right. or sell the property after a short period of time. But otherwise, these agency loans, Fannie and Freddie, have prepayment penalties that pretty much are the duration of the term of the loan. So... Uh, so it's really important for you to know your exit strategy for the property. You know, right. And, and, and that's why sometimes they have loan assumptions as well. So if, if right. someone's selling a, an agency loan, and I can let you talk about this a little bit more, but for the listeners, you know, an assumption is if you have a loan on a property and you want to sell it, but you don't want to activate that prepayment penalty, the new buyer can get approved through the existing lender to assume that loan. So therefore the prepayment penalty is not triggered. Um, and I, I think that's pretty powerful too. Sometimes I feel, and I see this a lot too, that some deals that are assumptions will sit on the market for a little bit longer because maybe the interest rate's a little bit higher than it is of what you can get now, um, or even the uh, loan to value. So the amount of money you'd have to put down to get that assumption can be kind of high too. So the terms can't always be favorable for the buyer. Would you agree with that, Terry? Yes, it's a really good point. Um, and I just want to back up for a moment and I'll get right into that in, in a sec. But mm -hmm. so community banks and credit unions do not allow their loan to be assumed. Uh, they, that's not something they do. However, these agency loans can be assumed. And, uh, and so what happens is that they have, most of those loans have what's called yield maintenance. And what you can do is Google yield maintenance, or you could buy a copy of my book and I give a really good explanation of yield maintenance in, in the encyclopedia, financing encyclopedia section. So, but, but yield maintenance prepayment penalty works out pretty good if rate interest, if you wait a while to prepay and interest rates go up, then it could be as small as a 1% prepayment penalty, but if rates go down, then, it could be prohibitive to prepay because what happens? Because what happens is that these loan, these agency loans, um, your loan is actually bundled with a lot of other loans that have the same maturity and sold as mortgage-backed security bonds on Wall Street. So the investors are promised this rate of return for if your loan is uh, fixed for five years, then for five years, or if it's ten years, it's it's good. They're promised this rate for ten years. So. Uh, so what happens is that if somebody's selling a property and they need the loan to be assumed, it's more, most likely they have a yield maintenance prepayment penalty and they can't afford to pay it. So it's much better for them to have uh, their loan assumed. Now, here's the problem is that if their prepayment penalty is high because of yield maintenance, it means that rates are lower, are much lower now. And then of course the a buyer would make up better by just getting, you know, uh, just current financing with the lower rates and getting right. out, getting a new loan. But so, so you know, what, what, you know, a good real estate broker or lender could help you structure it so that the seller comes down at the capex they have to sell. The seller comes down in price a bit, uh, and perhaps you 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 actually accept a larger, I mean, a higher interest rate. You know, it's kind of like balances it out for both yep. buyer and seller. Uh, uh, but if, if you can't, if, but the seller's not willing to give in that, in that way, then it's really better just to find a property that you can finance uh, with lower rate. Right. But, and but that's yeah. what I've been seeing too, is just, like I said, you know, you, you see properties that are uh, assumption purchases and they tend to sit on the market a lot longer, especially yes. with rates as low as they are today. 
That, that's a good point. And and if the sellers aren't really willing to come down, that might that that can be a problem. That can be a problem. But you know, but my, my advice to, to buyers is that if the property has, you know, a, a higher cap rate, it means that you know it's priced it's priced you know more reasonably. If it has additional income, if it has a, an ups, a great upside, like the market, the rents are already under market. All you have to do is just paint it, put in new uh, floor coverings, and you could raise the rents. You know, if it's got a great upside that you could actually achieve some benefit from in a year or less, then it's okay to pay to go ahead and assume that loan and maybe, maybe have a higher interest rate because you're going to make up for it by being able to raise uh, the gross income. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, most definitely. And it, the agency financing, I mean, it, it is very strong if you're comparing it to the the local, the credit union, the regional, the national, even um, taking advantage of that 30 year amortization, um, the fixed rate for a longer period instead of having the floating rate. And also, you know, the, the Freddie Fannie, they offer some good interest only periods as well. Did you want to touch on that before we get into the next loan? Yeah, time? that's a good, yeah, actually, absolutely. So with investors of, of commercial real estate, or, and, and for that matter, any investment real estate, what, what you're really looking for are two things, cash on cash return, yep. which takes a look at the income from operations on an annual basis, and then also uh, internal rate of return, which takes a look at the cash on cash return or annual income from operations, but it also takes a look at appreciation. Commercial real estate, you actually, in almost all cases, you make more income from appreciation years than you do from uh, from operate income from operations, and so uh, so it really does uh, it really does pay to find a property that's that you know that you can actually improve and will go up in value, you know, and also has you know, has a pretty good rate of return, but. Uh, remind me of the question you asked. You asked me. the interest only. We we're talking about interest oh, yeah, only. Yeah, interest, on I'm the, sorry. Uh, yeah, the interest only. Okay, that's okay. So, so, so to, to, to so actually, what the best thing you can do actually to increase your cash on cash return and your internal rate return is actually to get a certain number of years of interest only. So both both uh, Fannie and Freddie have that. Like at sixty five percent leverage, if you could put down thirty five percent with uh, Freddie Mac, you could get ten years interest only. Wow, and ideally, it's going to be in a slightly larger MSA or larger population center. With with Fannie Mae right now, we're we're seeing interest only pretty comfortably for two years on seventy five percent financing, and maybe up to four years on uh, you know on sixty five percent leverage. You want to drop I just want to touch on this real quick. I mean, it, what people need to understand is the interest only is that's not something you can get offered on small multifamily. So if you're a mom and pa uh, investor and you're doing two to four units or single family rentals, you don't get access to these benefits, um, nor do you get access to these Freddie and Fannie loans. Cause Terry, like you said, it's a minimum of a million or higher um, really 2 million or higher is when it starts to get good and interest only. I mean, when we underwrite properties, we look at it without paying, uh, we, we pay principal and interest normally, and then we activate interest only for say three years. Um, and it makes the cash on cash return pop. Our returns look a lot better because we're not in the play for uh, paying principal down. We're fine with paying that in the back end once the property appreciates and paying the difference. But really what we're focusing on is trying to get our investors as high as returns up front as possible. And if we're only stuck paying interest instead of interest and principal, that's going to make a huge difference in our cash flow and our IRR as well. Yeah, it actually is quite remarkable of a difference. And what I re- recommend when I uh, speak to investor groups that are looking, if they're, if the investor, if they're investor, if, you know, if the, and also the syndicators together groups of investors is to actually, you know, take a look at, is actually put together a pro forma that shows uh, the rents going up over time. If the whole period, let's say is a five-year period and you could show the rents increasing annually, then by the time, let's say if you only have four years of interest only, What's happening is during those four years, you're going to be putting a lot more on the bottom line because you're not paying that money, you're not paying off any principal. Right. But after that period of time, your rents are going to be increased enough to where you can continue that rate of return to your investors because you have more gross income coming in. Does, does that make sense? It, it does, yeah. And I mean, once we implement that interest only, 
I, I've seen the cash on cash return change by as much as five points, five percentage um, when yeah. it comes to that cash on cash. And that's huge. It's quite remarkable. Yes. And so you could get, so what you want to do is actually, as long as you have the financials of the property, preferably uh, two years, of, at least two years of historical financials as well, you could get pre-approved uh, by a good commercial mortgage broker or lender or agency lender to make sure that you're going to qualify for one of these interest-only programs. But that that's that's yeah. If you're going to be uh, raising investors or looking to uh, sell the property in you know five years or so, ten years even, I'm saying you know then right. That's your goal. Yeah. yeah. And what advice do you give to someone who's someone's listening to this right now? They're they're looking to start syndicating. They want to get access to these phenomenal agency debt programs that are available to them, but they have no experience and they're investing out of state. What would you say the best advice for them is to once they have a deal and they have it under contract, and they want to apply for this financing. How can they lock it in? Okay, well, without tooting my own horn too much, <laughs> I, I have a okay. So I've worked with. Don't ask me how I got into this. Um, it's actually my buddy, Peter Harris, who wrote the book, Commercial Real Estate Investing on Dummies. And we laugh because I say, I wrote the best book on commercial real estate. And he says he wrote the best book. We have the same publisher and we're great friends, but he actually is incredibly talented. Is You could find him on the web under Commercial Property Advisors, uh, Peter Harris. And he's really good at getting people started with, with uh, and putting them together in investment groups. Uh, but or also if you just want to buy a, you know a smaller property and just do it yourself so but it's not it's really the you know there's a chapter in my book on raising investors and 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 partnership and putting together partnerships and uh, you know th there's some really great tips that I have that I've that we've tested out and they do work um, I'm uh, I, I just recently wrote an article for Forbes mag magazine. I'm a contributing writer there, and uh, just on the, the title is is you know buying commercial real estate with no money or experience. And I start out with sorry, this is a for the disclaimer, but that's not really possible because you do need. But you know, but if you could put some money down and actually fake it until you make it, and follow some you know some of the tips in my advice are some of the advice in my book is to bring on a high net worth investor who also can be a key principal on your loan. Right. Uh, and use them actually to, you know, you know, open up those doors for you. And then what you can do is you could actually, when you're finding, going out to find properties to, to purchase, you could be representing this high net worth investor. And that is, uh, and you'll get a lot of real estate brokers to actually work with you. If you just tell them, if they get the whim that you're not experienced and, you, you know, as soon as they think you're not, they don't know what you're doing, they'll try to get you off the phone. Yeah, so, no, it's exactly right. It's kind of using the key principles muscle to make you look a little bit better. Um, and having them, that, that key principle that has the network and has the um, experience is huge as well because you can learn from them. You can kind of use them to view more deals, view their processes and how things are done. Um, I think it's a great idea of how to get started and really understand the business. Um, and you have a professional looking over your shoulder, kind of dotting the eyes for you and crossing the T's in case you do miss something. And right. when you are out there and you want to attract these individuals, for those that are listening there, say, well, well, how do I get in some of these guys' ears? There's two things people are usually looking for in this business if they're syndicating. It's deals or capital. Bring them the deal and then they can help out with the rest. If something that they don't have, if you're bringing them something they need, there's no reason why they don't want to partner with you on the deal or, or do business with you. Yeah, I can't stress that enough. Even to this day, you know, uh, I mean, if I, I could be so busy in a day and if I get a shiny new deal that is just really a, a really solid deal, that means that it's currently cash flowing, uh, it has a great upside with a, a value add upside. It has in a good location, a good neighborhood. No crime, you know. So if it has all that going for it, I find myself dropping everything to help that person uh, put the deal together. And right. Sells most deals are not that great. So if you're if you're just starting out and you have you find you know the, but you really want to you, you've got to actually put in more uh, more time and really pound the pavement and find those great deals and then you'll get attention. Uh, the other thing I really recommend for people starting out, uh, if, if you're going to be raising investors, is it's really imperative to have 
at least 10% of your own money into, into the deal. Yep, so because if somebody game. says, well, because everybody's going to ask you, well, how much are you putting in? Do you really want to say zero? You know, uh, and then how are you going to explain that? But you just want to, you're not willing to take any risk and you don't really have the experience, but, you know, you want them to invest their money. So. Yeah, it doesn't look good. You got to have skin in the game. Um, is there, Terry, anything else you want to touch on in the agency debt before I have you mention the FHA HUD programs available? Yeah, no, um, let's move on to that. Okay, yeah, awesome. So, yeah, go right um, ahead. Yeah, so, uh, so uh, HUD, uh, the Department of Urban Housing and Urban Affairs, I think that's it, Urban Development, I'm sorry. Uh, their mandate is actually to create more quality housing in America and make sure there's money available to finance it. HUD does not actually uh, make loans. That's, that's a misunderstanding that a lot of people have. And there's so much, there's a lot of work to do on a HUD loan, hundreds of hours for a lender uh, and broker as well. So uh, for that reason, uh, you know, most uh, HUD lenders don't really want to, they really want the loans to be two or three million and above ideally. So if it's, uh, especially, and the, the, the HUD loans take, a, uh, really take uh, a lot of time. Uh, so for that reason, they don't really lend themselves to uh, purchases. The, you know, the, you, could, you could use them for a purchase if you want to, but you do have to have, unless the seller wants to wait six, eight months for the loan to close, which of course most don't want to, uh, you're going to have to get a bridge loan to close and then switch into a HUD loan. But mm. for refinance, uh, they're perfect. They're great. But anyway, the benefit, of, the great benefit of a HUD loan is number one, it's not, it's not recourse. Number two, it does not, you know, it doesn't really take as much to qualify because uh, the loan does not take. You don't have to have a lot of income. You don't have a. You can't be broke at the end of the loan, uh, but you do not have to have a lot of post-closing liquidity. You do have to have experience, but it, but the process lends itself greatly to bringing in, uh, a, you know, a key principal to share, being responsible for the loan with you, that has that experience. Uh, most of all, HUD loans have you could get a 35-year fixed rate uh, wow. loan on a you know like today, uh, as we're talking right now, it's kind of like mid-January. 2021, and the rate is as low as, uh, let's just say, uh, roughly pretty close to 3%, maybe 340% on a 35 year fixed mortgage. And even if that Do they offer, I'm sorry, go ahead. To, even that, you know, generally the rate's more like four and three quarters or so, but they're just unusually low right now. But yeah, so if you can, if you want to, if this is a property, and also if you are an investor, you know, if you're investors, and the rate you could lock a rate in that's that low, uh, and it's only it only costs a half to assume uh, a HUD loan. So that's the way to for for investors to exit out prior to you know the ten years where there's a prepayment penalty. Right. So to, a few questions on that HUD process: Does it go up to forty year amortization, or does it really cap out at thirty five? Really, uh, to really be totally transparent on that, here's the thing. Uh, if you're buying, okay, so forty-year uh, amortizations are only for the D4s, which are construction rollover to perm loans for multifamily. Okay. Uh, for a property that's fairly new and in great shape, you're going to get a thirty-five-year amortization. If the property need, the property is older, then most most likely have a you'll just need too much work, and what it would, and it will probably get a thirty-year amortiz, fully amortizing loan. You know, and fixed for 30 years. The problem with uh, HUD loans don't really uh, really work well for properties that need a lot of work, unless you're going to do major rehab, and then it can work. It, it, it can't it can't be a uh, the right product loan product. Well, what you described is you get a bridge loan on it because typically a seller's not willing to sit around for up to a year with their property tied up under contract. Yes. You, you get the bridge loan, you do the work that needs to be done. And then when you're ready, you apply for that HUD loan because you're the owner. You can sit on it. You just got to make sure that maturity date or balloon um, is not due on that bridge loan anytime soon. You got to give yourself that year span. Correct. But the 
But, but here's the thing is that we're for Fannie and Freddie and for commercial, uh, commercial banks mm-hmm. and credit unions, the property just has to be in good condition. Right. It might, need, it might have some deferred maintenance uh, and need some repair, but nothing major. For HUD financing, the property has to be in excellent, excellent condition. And so it's, it's just that by the time you had to put everything into excellent condition on an older property, let's say a C property, class property, or, or C minus property, it just doesn't pencil out. Also, you have to put larger uh, uh, capital reserve uh, down uh, for a property that is older. And it's quite often just doesn't pencil out. Capital improvements are basically, uh, capital reserves are uh, reserves that go into an account from your go in with your mortgage payment every month to take care of future repairs. And HUD loans have those. So I don't want to scare anybody away from HUD financing or even for a purchase, but but I would say if the property is certainly more than 20 years old, and you know, it might be uh, it might just not be cost effective. But otherwise, uh, it it could be, you know, if you if you're gonna hold the property forever, you can't, it's the best quality financing available in, in America. Right. And like you, you mentioned with the development side, I mean, we can make a whole nother show on just the development side of yes. financing and, and, you know, um, a, a form of bridge loan or construction loan into permit. We won't even get into all that. Um, with the HUD loan, real quick, two more questions I had on that was, what does prepayment typically look like on a HUD loan? And is the sure. reason people aren't really using the HUD loan every day is because the amount of time it takes to close and it can really be used on only, you know, like you said, 20 years or less assets, which are usually A class or core plus or B plus classes. Correct. Uh, prepayment penalty is a declining prepayment penalty starting with, you know, goes starting with 10 years going down to one, to, you know, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. So three. a step down? Step down, yes. And so you can, however, what's nice, one of the things that's nice about a HUD loan is that you can, let's say, after probably three years. You could do it sooner than that. If rates really come down, you could refinance the property. It takes about only two months to do that. And pull, pull, you could pay off, sometimes you could pull off, pay off the prepayment penalty and you know, get a better rate. But, but otherwise, uh, the, uh, the, main, the, the main problem with the HUD loan, what people don't like about them, number one is what you mentioned, is that they just take a long time. So they're great for refinances, for purchases, if the sellers want to wait, you know, uh, fast as I've been doing HUD lending since 1999, uh, and the, uh, the fastest I've ever closed one is seven months. So they wow. just now because it's going to be eight months plus because HUD is, you know, being that we're in a, you know, uh, because of the pandemic and the coronavirus recession, uh, there just aren't a lot of opportunities. Banks are not doing. Uh, new construction starts right now, uh, the, and most other lenders as well. So uh, HUD still is doing it. So they're over, kind of overloaded. And so, just, so even for a refinance or purchase loan, HUD, you've got to wait for HUD to review the package, and it takes quite a bit of time. Right. So. No, I think that's great. I think it's a great program, and it, it's not spoken about too often. But again, it's not as easy to get. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, I'm just going to jump in just really quick. Just on, yep. Okay, so on development... Uh, if somebody has the time, you know, like, like right now we're working on a, our firm is working on a uh, large, you know, uh, commercial multifamily development in Nebraska where, you know, it's all, it's, it's going to be like four or five phases and, you know, the property is been pretty much approved by the city. They're supporting the, the whole thing. And, but yet it's going to take time to do the pre-development uh, and a whole bunch of other work that it takes. And so they have the time actually to do HUD financing and uh, they're gonna be raising investors as well. So if you're raising investors and you're thinking about developing a property, uh, again, my book has, uh, will help you decide whether you have what it takes to be a developer and what and whether that's a good direction to go into someday for you in the future. But anyway, but HUD, HUD financing is some of the best for that, for developing. For, yeah. I mean, even in your book, you've got a great chapter on development. Um, and that's something as we grow more experience in the multifamily space, we'd love to explore, you know, five, 10 years down the road as it does take a lot to be a developer. Um, we, we 
talked about the smaller banks. We talked about agency. We talked about HUD uh, briefly. I think we touched on those. Those are great. Terry, why don't you give us a little bit of insight on the market right now from a lending perspective of what's going on with COVID, um, how lenders have possibly tightened up. Please take that away. Sure. So, so right now uh, we are very definitely into a recession. You know, uh, GDP is, uh, is way, way down. Unemployment is way up. And also on top of that, like a lot of recessions there, but this one even more is more trouble, uh, you know, problematic, I should say, is that people are not paying rent. We're talking about a lot of working class people in the in service uh, related jobs and travel related jobs, hospitality jobs, where their, their industry has been completely wiped out. And what's happened is that if they're renting an apartment building, let's in an apartment building, uh, you know, let's say roughly right now, the national average is about, you know, it was at about 10 or 12 percent. It's in you know some locations as high it's as high as 16 percent are not paying the rent. And a lot of times their bosses are not able to pay their rent either. Right. So, uh, so banks for the most part are just okay. So this is, because it's you know recession as in all recessions they're not there's they're just are not making new construction loans. But they've also but all lender lending programs and two including banks and credit unions have tightened their underwriting guidelines. So where they used to, let's say, lend at six seventy-five percent, unless you, you know, if you have, you know, if you have a high net worth, plenty of cash left over after the loan, many sources of income, and so on, then yeah, you can still get a seventy-five percent loan. But otherwise, you're probably going to be looking at a sixty-five percent loan. Now, for Fannie and Freddie, because of the pandemic, what happened uh, and the recession that we're in right now is that how they're able to do a loan they're able to loan is that number one, the US government has actually has been buying uh, commercial backs, uh, mortgage security bonds. And so, oh. that, that, so that means that we have a lot of liquidity in the market. There's a lot of money available for Fannie and Freddie and HUD as well. And so, but on the other hand, in order, the only way they can make, the, way they, the reason they can make these loans is because they also have, and this is, this is kind of painful, but your listeners do need to know about this is that they do have a payment reserve. So uh, at, uh, for Fannie, that's going to be anywhere from six months to 12 months of loan payments you have to put down in a reserve account before the loan closes. So you have to have that on top of your post-closing liquidity requirement and your down payment and your closing costs. So, uh, and for, uh, but so, but under, um, under 65, uh, 65% leverage, let's say at 55%, you know, if you're loan to value, you're, you're, there's no COVID requirement. Uh, right, because your, your leverage is so low, yeah. you have so much equity in the property. Yeah, that there's not much of a risk. But this is what happened during, after the Great Recession is that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac really put their brakes out on lending because the government, it took the government about seven months to start buying the mortgage-backed security bonds. And also they didn't have this reserve. So this, this is, and so, but because the banks have cut down on lending, uh, we, you know, uh, we're doing more Fannie and Freddie loans. I mean, we're really busy on those right now and HUD too. Uh, so. Awesome, awesome. I mean, I, Terry, I think you, you dropped a lot of knowledge and people need to understand that we've just scratched the surface. I mean, you've got a, a whole book, 450 pages that, uh, obviously, it's not all, all on financing, it's all on commercial, but you've got a hefty chapter in there about financing all the different programs available, how to apply for them, how, how to qualify for them, and how to use them properly on, on your assets. Um, before we hop off here, was there anything else you wanted to touch base on? Anything you wanted to talk to the listeners, or listeners about? Yeah, yeah it's, I would say um, for those of, those of you that are just getting into commercial real estate, uh, or just getting, if you, let's just say you're thinking, maybe you've fixed and flipped some properties or you own a rental home or two, and you want to, you want to go, you know, move up into, uh, I mean, let's just say owning a sixplex, a 12plex, you know, something larger. Uh, the most important thing is when you're starting out is to find a property that currently is not, you know, not at a higher risk level. In other words, choose something more because what happens is that uh, it's a learning curve, actually, to learn how to manage 
a property that has a lot of tenants. And if you're going to be doing it yourself, especially, and if you're going to be hiring professional management, which is probably the way to go, you still have to manage your property manager. So, and you still have to, this is a hands-on business. You know, we think of commercial real estate as being passive, but it's not. So my, my main advice is to pick up, I mean, just like, don't try for, don't choose a property that, you know, needs, that has, let's say, 60% tenancy, uh, you know, 30, 30% of the units have been burned out and need to be rebuilt, you know, and on top of that, you have a lot, it's, you know, not in a great neighborhood, you have a lot of tenants paying late or not paying the rent at all. These are all, you know, so you have, all, you have five or six problems and you, you have the properties at a great price. So what happens is that those properties that you could find at a be better price and you think you could do all this to make, bring them up. Oh, I get it. That's, that sounds like a great opportunity, but without a lot of experience and bringing in the right uh, team members to help you do that. Right. You know, it can be a recipe for disaster. And, and what you want to do is so start out with something that just, you know, maybe the rents are under market, and it needs uh, some remodeling, some new paints, some new floor coverings, some new appliances, and then you could raise rents over time, but it's in a decent neighborhood. You know, just, you know, really what you want to, you don't want to, you take some, start out with something that you can just pretty much know that you're going to be successful from after the first year. Yeah, no, that, Terry, that's a good word. And I really appreciate you uh, letting listeners know on that. Um, Terry, if someone wanted to talk to you more about the programs you guys offer or even do business with you, how can they reach out to you? Okay, well, actually, uh, okay, so uh, you can reach me personally. This is really long, but you could, you could, you could email me at terry uh, at the encyclopedia of commercial real estate advice.com. That's the name of my book. Uh, I, it wasn't my idea to make it that long, you know? Okay, <laughs> okay. Or, or you could also, uh, I, you know, you could also reach me at uh, at apartment, you know, probably multifamilyapartmentloanstore.com. Just, just Google apartmentloanstore.com. Awesome. Well, Terry, thank you again so much for taking the time on your day coming over here. I believe you're in the uh, Dominican Republic right now, correct? Yes, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm looking out at the Atlantic Ocean. It's a sunny day and it's about 83 degrees. So, well, sorry to I appreciate you taking the time to not look at the ocean and look at my face for about an hour or so. So that's <laughs> very, I'm very thankful for that. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Not a problem. We'll Thank talk you. to you okay. soon. Thanks for having me, Dante. Thanks for listening. We hope you were able to take some value away from today's episode. For more information or to connect with Dante, visit victorycapgroup.com. See you next week.